Let us open our Bibles to the book of James, chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. And I want, I want to welcome personally our visitors, those who are visiting, welcome, those who are watching us digitally, online, Facebook, hopefully YouTube, uh, welcome as well. James 4, 1 to 10. Let us read, and then we'll pray. Amen? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not, have, you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come humbled, contrite in spirit. Lord, knowing that you are all-sufficient Savior, creator of the heavens and the earth. And that is the posture we bring today. Reminding us of who you are and who we are. Lord, compared to you, we are a speck of dust. You are magnified. You are glorified through the ages, Lord. And we come to preach your word. Spirit of God, use me. It's not about the messenger. It is about the message, about Christ crucified. Lord, use us. Lord, soften our hearts. Lord, exhort us. Through your word. And we come to repentance. If there is any sin left unopened to you, Lord. Because you see it all. You could be hypocrites, but not with you, Lord. So we pray today, Lord, that you use us. That you, Lord, lead us into all righteousness. Amen. Not in our strength, Lord. But in Christ. Amen. In Christ alone. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. This is the third and final sermon of, on this particular passage. Uh, so far we've seen that worldliness takes a root in our hearts. It starts there in the heart. Don't look no further. Don't look to circumstances or the outward. It starts here, the heart. We are so curved inward with ourselves. Our own, we are our own threat, our own enemy. That's what James told us. 
in verses 1 to 3. That the cause of worldliness is here. We've learned so far that all sorts of evil and malice come from our sinful hearts, our sinful nature. Matthew 15, 19 says, reminds us, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Now we have that posture today that we're just reading this passage. We just don't browse and may it resonate in our hearts. In other words, all sorts of worldliness manifest from within. And this is the theme of this three-part sermon. The title is Flee Worldliness, Drawing Near to God. If I could say it, I would say like this, flee for your lives. Today we'll be going through the third point, as I said. The first point was the cause of worldliness. The second point was God's provision against worldliness because it is true. Although we are our worst enemy, we have a sweet friend who grants us and gives us grace. And today's point is, in humility, we draw near to God, preventing all worldliness. It is only in God that we find rescue from all worldliness. We will see that the Christian life is comprised of joyful living in Christ, but also a life of sorrow because of our sinful nature. It is that duality of our Christian walk. We are just so joyful because of our salvation, our grace. But it is also true, the sin lingers. and We live sorrow because of it. Well, what do you mean? What do, I, you, what do you mean, Daron? This is what I mean. We don't walk through life joyful because I'm a better me. Rather, we walk joyful in Christ who works through me. In other words, Christ or Christians walk a life of despising sin and any worldliness that our heart produces, but live a better life in Christ who lives in us. In that we rejoice. The gospel we preach week in, week out, on Sunday school, Sundays, reminds us that we need God's grace Every day to lead us away from any worldliness. That is any clinging to our selfish desires. We're going through that this morning on Romans 2. Today we'll see an imagery, an image of what a true believer looks like. Man or woman of God who continuously lives out a life of repentance over sin that still lingers. But we live in a constant dependency on God to rid any worldliness. Let me start with this quote this morning to get our hearts fixed on what God wants to teach us. Francis Fuller, and bear with me because it's a little long, said this. To repent is to accuse and condemn ourselves. To charge upon ourselves the desert of hell. To take part with God against ourselves and to justify him in all that he does against us. To be ashamed, to be confounded for our sins, to have them ever in our eyes. 
and at all times upon our hearts that we may be in daily sorrow for them to take part with, with our right hands and eyes, that is, with those pleasurable sins which have been dear to, to us as our, as our lives, so as never to, to do with them more and to hate them, so as to destroy them as things which by nature we're wholly disinclined to, or wholly, I don't know. For we naturally love and think well of ourselves, do we not? Hide our, hide our deformities, lessen and excuse our faults, indulge ourselves in the things that please us, are mad upon our lusts, and follow them, though to our own destruction. What a reminder. And this is precisely what James is teaching us this morning, through this fourth uh, chapter. We are so so curved into our own desires, our passions. And when we do give in to these desires and passions, we do all sorts of evil. And that was verse 1 to 3. What a warning. When we are so curved into ourselves, that's when we lose track of the bigger picture. That's when we start drawing near to worldliness rather than drawing near to God. It starts with a me mentality. That's when the finite things take precedence before the eternal things. And this is so true for us believers as well. We too at times revert to the me mentality, to my needs need to be met first. I want the American dream, and that dream at times seems much sweeter and more real than the kingdom of God. We find ourselves more committed to the things of this world rather than the things to come. That, beloved, is worldliness. When anything or anyone that takes precedent over God and His will, when we create idols that overshadow the Creator, that beloved beloved, are the direct manifestations of the world and the enemy. That is worldliness. And that, beloved, is a powerful enticement. Let me remind you what C.S. Lewis said about this. You and I need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness. It is evil and it is hard to fight on our own. And if you remember last sermon, we learned that we need God and His grace. We don't need Christian books. We don't need seminars. We don't need conferences. We need God. Our first love. We need a life of submission to God. We'll explain what that looks like in a bit. And this is what the Christian life consists of. A continuous life of submission. We just don't submit one day and, 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 and repent one day. We have a continuous life of submission and repentance to the Lord. To flee worldliness 
And any worldview that goes against God and his character, it starts with submitting to him. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, it seems repentance, true repentance, leads to resistance. Notice that the word resist in the Greek language is a military term. To resist means to oppose and fight back. To stand against in combat. It's a fight. It's a straight up fight. Look at what Paul says. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If we, and I remember Brother Edwin preached on this, I think it was on eschatology, and he said, if God for a second, for a minute, would open our spiritual eyes to the reality of what is going on around us, what would our posture be to the gospel? James also gives us this imagery of a battle against spiritual forces, mainly the devil. Any scheme, world philosophy, any lies against God and God's people are always propagated and schemed by the devil and his spiritual forces. It's around us. Behind any worldliness or trend that tries to put out the light of the gospel and the church, Cosmic powers are behind it. And we need to have this reality set in place. Because it is serious. So this word resist or antiteste in Greek sets an imagery of a fight. It is not a passive attitude. It is a willful commitment to a fight. Commitment to a fight. And it starts with a humble submission to the Lord. Taking refuge in the Lord, not in your own strength and understandings or possessions, your 401k or the economy or the American army. The word resist is only used twice in the New Testament, twice. Both depicting a resistance against the enemy, but with a description of a humble attitude. And this is no coincidence. Let's read 1 Peter 5, 6-11. Peter wrote, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, nothing else, so that at the proper time, He may, what? Exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, Because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. And here it is. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour. And here it is. Resist. Same word. Antiteste. Resist him. Firm in what? In your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, 
will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever. Amen. James and Peter have it clear. Worldliness is manifested when pride is abundant in our heart. When we are curved into ourselves. When I don't see my own flaws. My own shortcomings. When I don't see them but I point out the flaws of others. And worse yet, I don't submit to God to fix them. Then the flesh takes a hold and all sorts of malice manifests. And worse, yet we start believing the lies of the devil. James is saying, succumb and come to the ends of you and come to the one that can carry your worries for you. To the one that calls you his. To the one that calls you more than victorious in Christ Jesus. Not in your own self. Not in your own strength. In Christ Jesus. Stop believing the lies of the devil. That what you don't have is better than what you do have. Or that if you had something else in life, you'll finally be happy. Or that you need to look or appear a certain way to be accepted. Or appreciated. Or that God doesn't love you unless you perform. Beloved, our Christian life is a fight. We don't fight the way we think we ought to fight. There's no earthly weapon that can help, uh, uh, help you in this fight. The fight for the believer is one of submission, James says. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. You cannot fight these cosmic powers and the world with human effort or human we- uh, weapons. Yenning Duncan's, Duncan said this. What is the thing that you need the most for the fight that you're going to be in? God. What is the thing you need most in order to conquer worldliness? God. You need a relationship with Him. You need Him. You need communion with Him. You need His presence. You need His power. You need His favor. And how do you get that? You draw near to God. What's James saying? Draw near to God through the means that He has appointed you to draw near to Him. What does that mean? It means coming to worship the Lord on His day, week in, week in, week out, year after year, being under the preaching of the Word in public worship, where the Bible is read and preached and prayed and sung and seen in the sacraments. So we'll see this morning. Cultivating every appointed avenue whereby we have fellowship with Him. Look The skies don't have to part and the angels don't have to sing for God's grace to sing. And I'm going to murder this word. It may be imperceptible. How do you say it? Imperceptibly. There you go. Wow. Working in you in ways that you have no idea. Ways that you cannot comprehend. And James is saying, draw near to God. Fellowship with God. Isn't a call to go out and have some ecstatic spiritual experience. Just draw near to God in those means that He has appointed. That's it. It's commitment to the Lord. 
This is James' thought. In our pride, we revert to our own devices, our own way of thought. And when we fail, and we will, we cause all sorts of problems. We do. That's when the neighbor's wife or husband starts to have a better appeal than ours, right? We start to find all sorts of shortcomings in others and justify ourselves in doing so. When Christ is not at the center of our hearts, we start to find all sorts of excuses for not being amidst God's people and fellowship. When Christ is not at the center of our priority, then God's appointed means of grace become secondary and not satisfying. And that is who we are, beloved. We are so fallen in our nature that our eyes tend to wander. We take our eyes, our hearts, our minds of the one that matters. And we find ourselves reverting to our sinful nature. It is in him we find life. And we find ourselves cheating on that exam, cheating on our taxes. We become so critical of others that we don't find our, uh, the faults in ourselves. We become blinded by our pride. We can do no wrong. And James says that the solution for worldliness, the solution for the craziness in our hearts, that being ourselves is to draw near to God. James implies that we submit to the Lord, and in doing so, we resist the devil and all sorts of malices and unrighteousness. But that the battle against worldliness is a constant one, drawing near to God. In this picture, so picture this, and the Bible has a, it mentions it a couple of times. It is this image of little chicks drawing near to the hen, being under the wings of the hen. Matthew 23, 37 says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood or her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. And we find ourselves not willing to be under the protection of our Lord. We love His benefits. We love when He blesses us with a promotion. When we close the deal... But when it comes down to the lordship over our lives, over our most intimate desires, then we struggle, don't we? That's when we say, not there, Jesus. I love salvation. (laughs) But no, you can't rule there. That's mine. That's when we take a U-turn. A couple of days I was reading the famous battle of Thermopylae. You probably have heard it, seen movies. I mean, Hollywood exaggerates this, this battle, but it was an epic one nonetheless. It was this Persian army led by Xerxes, and uh, it was the year 480 BCE. They wanted to subjugate all Greece. This massive army of 100,000 to 300 men was sent to Greece with the sole purpose to, of destroying everything in its path. Against them stood a relative tiny army of 7,000 Greeks led by the famous 300 Spartans, uh, the King Leonidas, right? I see you, Carlos, smiling. Everybody knows the story. Very famous. While the Spartans were celebrating a sacred uh, festival, 
that did not permit the, uh, any military action to be taken. Upon hearing the Persian army coming, uh, the Spartans sent 300 special forces. They're Navy SEALs. This small force was led by King Leonidas, who formulated the battle strategy, which was to take advantage of the geographical terrain, or in the hot gates. It was Thermopylae. It was just a mountain with a small little pathway. And between that humongous army, the Persian army, that pathway led to all of Greece. So what Leonidas said was, okay, we'll have 300. We're going to do is we're going to shield together. We're going to protect each other. And wave against wave, we're going to protect from the army to coming over. And they did for two days. Two days. The barrage of arrows, nothing could penetrate this small unit. But there was a traitor. And this traitor told Xerxes there was a hidden pathway. And they ambushed them from the back and destroyed Leonidas and the 300. Why do I say this? Because this story has some similitudes to what the spiritual battle is. They were resisting the enemy, the Varaj. But what they had wrong is that they trusted the wrong protection. They trusted the mountain to protect them. In a Christian walk, we protect our God. We resist, we run to him, to his protection, in which there's no back way. There's no one to snitch. There's no one to come from behind. He is our protection. And in doing so, gathering to that protection, we resist the devil. We resist all sorts of worldliness. That's why I wanted to say, tell that story. Not because I didn't want to make it a big deal about them. It was just imagery that we do possess the one who protects us, the one who grants us grace. As Jenny Duncan quotes put it, we submit and draw near to God in our daily walk, holding tight to our beliefs and the means of grace He has appointed. For example, not neglecting this, meeting with one another. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, don't make it a habit. Don't be like those who, who could count the days they're out. And I don't mean this to, to be judgmental. I, I don't. I hope that this is a means of grace. It is a means of grace. As things get chaotic in the world, in your life, who do you draw near to? Do you draw near to the world, to, your, to our flesh, to our might, to our strength? And like I said, like the Spartans who trusted the mountain corridor to preserve them, all these things will fail you. James says in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What James here is depicting is an attitude of humbleness towards the Lord. An attitude of spiritual meekness. Of a contrite spirit. Which will always lead you to do God's will. 
instead of spiritual peripheness, which will lead you to fulfill your own will. Spiritual meekness or humbleness impulses to obedience and to commitment to the Lord and to the things of the Lord. Zephaniah 2.3 says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Do you see that connection there? All who are spiritually broken, those who hold to Christ as Lord and Savior, will hear His voice and fulfill His commandments. But the key is a humble heart, a contrite spirit, a heart of repentance. And how do we know we are drawing near to the Lord? Let me give you an example. The word is preached from this pulpit week, week in and week out. We might not have the greatest of preachers. I'm not. But by the God's grace, we do our best to preach the gospel at its core. Drawing near to the Lord is when we don't ignore the admonitions and rebuke from God's word. We draw near to God when we are sensitive to God's word on our lives and what it produces. In the country, spiritual pridefulness is when we do hear the admonitions talking to our lives and we put on spiritual deafness like children. Or when some, something is said from the pulpit, but we look around see the brother next to me or the brother that you know you may think that message is for and you go that must have hurt that must have burned when really the message was for you drawing near to the lord is to be committed to the lord i've said that acknowledging that we, all we need is the lord a humble heart is acknowledge will acknowledge the need for Christ in everything. A prideful spirit will somehow believe that we are adding something to our successes, our provisions, and worse yet, to our salvation. You might have closed that deal at work, but rest assured it was all God's doing. You might be doing well at school and got the school or went to the college that you desired, but rest assured, nothing moves Nothing is set in place if God's mighty hands are not on it. Even success, as good as he feels, as well intended as may be, God must take precedence in your life. Remember Martha. Distracted with serving and with the things of this world, she tells the Lord, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me... To serve alone? The Bible says, but the Lord answered her. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen, chosen the good portion. Which will not be taken away from her. Mary drew near to the Lord. Forsook all that was earthly 
all that seemed like the status quo, the mundane, the world's philosophies, Mary only had eyes for the Lord. She humbled herself. She sat down at the Lord's feet and listened to his teachings. And not only listened, but she responded accordingly. She was reformed in the mind, but most importantly, it led her to a reformation of the heart. But which led her to, a, to humble herself rather than to be boastful and always keep God in his proper place, which is at the center of her life. Conclusion, and that will be a lengthy one, but it's conclusion nonetheless. Bear with me. Still got seven minutes. Let me finish with the last two verses. James finishes by describing what a humble heart looked like. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. What a promise. God will, will draw near to you as you draw near to Him. He won't deny you His spiritual blessings. That is... His continuous working and dealings in your heart. I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. What an assurance. Then James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Well, at first glance, it seems James is giving us a contradictory statement. What are you saying, James? Aren't we supposed to rejoice and experience joy always? Aren't we co-heirs with Christ? Isn't that something to boast about? Aren't we a chosen nation, kings and priests of the kingdom? What does James mean then? What does he mean when he says, With cl cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What sort of talk is this, James? I don't like to cry. I don't like to mourn. Well, many theologians believe that this, is, this statement has double implication. First, it reminds us of the posture we are to always have before the Lord. Yes, we are all these things in Christ, but the Lord continues to reign supreme. He is above all things, Creator, Savior, and Lord. We must always walk under that reality, which we walk with very loosey-goosey. Our humbleness before the Lord does not deny the truth that God has exalted us into a position of, as sons and daughters. It doesn't. But rather the knowledge that God has preordained our salvation and adoption must always humble us into submission to the Lord. Abraham understood this reality. Remember when Abraham prayed to Sodom and its people? He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. To the one, to the creator. I who am but dust and ashes. Abraham's boldness and familiarity with the Lord. To come to the Lord did not destroy his humbleness. Nor did his sense of nothingness hinder him to approach 
the Lord. That is submission to the Lord. That is drawing near to the Lord. And that must be our everyday posture. The second implication is that James is reminding us believers or non-believers alike of what it really looks like to be saved. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and joy to gloom. This is a reminder of what happens at the point of conversion. You were there. Remind yourselves of that. All our worldly pleasures, all our delights, all our dreams are shattered and turned upside down when we meet Christ at the cross. If God is calling you by His word, don't silence your conscience with worldly things. Instead, repent. And this is exactly the heart of the Lord, what, who the Lord exalts. A humble, a broken heart that mourns and weeps over their sin. Once you understand the magnitude of God's grace at the cross, there's nothing else to do than to mourn over our sins. James calls for, for a contrition and seriousness. As it relates to our sin. And we don't do that well beloved. I'm including myself. We take grace for granted. Jesus said. Woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Again this doesn't relate to us. Living life of misery, misery or sorrow. No. We rejoice in Christ for what he has done for us at the cross. He has given us freedom, ever, life everlasting. In Him we rejoice. But once we've grasped the magnitude and degree of the sacrifice at the cross, then we mourn every time we sin. Because we understand what it took to pay for it. The death of the Son of God. The precious blood. James ends with the results of spiritual humility. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. You may not be exalted as you wish today. You may, ever be able, you may never be able to buy your dream home. Or, or, or get to enjoy that expensive vacation. But God promises that if you humble yourself, you will be exalted as it relates to salvation and enjoying eternity with Him. Amen. Isaiah 55, 6, 7 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His ways and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let Him return to the Lord that He may, be, may have compassion on Him. You want to get rid of worldliness in your life? Run to Christ. Humble yourself and draw near to the Lord and He will exalt you. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Your Word has been preached. Lord, do with it as You will. All I bring is little loaves of bread, small little fishes. Multiply it as You will, Lord. Edify your people. Exhort them. 
bring about repentance. Lord, we need you. We humble ourselves. Lord, we take you for granted. We take the means of grace for granted so many times, Lord. I'm guilty of it. Lord, remind us that you should be and always ought to be the center of our lives in everything we do. Lord, we want to please you. We want to honor you. Lord, lead us, use us, Lord, to glorify your name, to magnify your glory, O King. May we never forsake your lordship over our lives, Lord. May we take that to account. May we be reminded of the seriousness, Lord, of the sacrifice of the cross. You paid it with your blood, Jesus. Let us remind ourselves today as we take the sacraments. And we take the elements, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Walk with us throughout this week. May, may we be reminded of this verse, this passage. May we draw near to you as you draw near to us. As we hear your word, Lord. As we pray to you. As we walk our lives, Lord. May we fulfill the great commission. As we draw near to you, not on our own strength, but the power of the Holy Spirit Amen. that dwells inside of us, Lord. And we pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.